0: And I think that restlessness is that sense of wanting to be a thoughtful participant in life, you know, whether it be on the ground with the environment or with other people.
1: This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana College of Business. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. So I'm not exactly sure how to classify or categorize the conversation you're about to hear, but it's one of my all-time favorites. Darcy Chenoweth is a doer of many things. She's an artist, an activist, a mom, a wife, a teacher, a climber, skier, nurse, the list goes on and on. And I've long admired her work, and our social circles overlap such that it's a bit of a surprise that we don't know each other better. So I reached out to Darcy to that end, to connect and to learn more about her approach to life. I'm so glad that I did. We cover a ton of ground in this conversation, and I hope that it inspires you as much as it did me. We're all just trying to do our best here in this world, and Darcy gives us some great wisdom about her effort. I'm excited for you to learn more about Darcy Chenoweth right now. Okay, so we're here today with Darcy Chenna with Darcy. Thanks for coming on the podcast.
0: It's my pleasure.
1: So this one's been a long time coming. I've long been an admirer of your work and kind of one of those folks in the community that I've wanted to get to know and, and our, our paths have just not crossed frequently enough. And the more I've gotten to learn about you, the more uh, I'm just impressed by your story It might be simpler to start this conversation by asking what you don't do because you do so many darn things.
0: (laughs) Yeah, um, I've been um, told I was vocationally ADD before, so I don't know if it's just my endless curiosity that keeps me moving or what exactly the motivation for the constant shifting. But yeah, I seem to try to keep it fresh and sometimes chaotic in doing that
1: indeed those two might go together and we'll, we'll talk about all of that um, let's first talk about how you kind of ended up in in, in Western Montana you, you grew up in Boulder right how did you how did you find your way here?
0: My aunt um, traveled around the state of Montana managing different ranches and so when I was in high school I'd come up and visit and it just instantly hit me as a place that I'd like to be couldn't envision leaving the Rockies from mm-hmm. growing up in Boulder, but just like so many people in the US, we get that itch to leave our hometown. And so just moving north along the Rocky Mountain chain seemed like a natural move. And having that little bit of exposure, I knew I'd like it here.
1: And spending time out in wild places and in the mountains is just sounds like it was part of probably a big part of your childhood. And then, you know, finding it up here was probably little bit uh, even wilder to, to to jump into.
0: Right. Yeah, I was I remember having university applications out to like Middlebury and here. And before I even finished the essays for Middlebury, I'd already gotten an acceptance letter from the University of Montana. Hmm. <laughs> and without any essays needing to be written. And, <laughs> <laughs> yep. um, and I just, you know, when I tried to envision myself living in a more populated state and out east i just couldn't picture myself there and so i dropped it and came north
1: and here we are and so did you go straight into you know kind of nursing right right from from your undergraduate experience is that kind of your point into that that part of the career
0: no my first degree was in environmental studies okay and um That took me to things like going down to South America and working down in Chile for a year with an environmental group, trying to preserve um, temperate rainforest along the 49th parallel in the South. And um, then that kind of my young idealistic self definitely got humbled there. And I made the realization that I wasn't gonna be able to really affect change and help people the way I wanted to environmentally until people had basic healthcare needs taken care of. Mm -hmm. And so when I came back north, I realized doing something like nursing or medical industry um, was going to be something I felt like I could leverage more, more help.
1: Makes sense. So into nursing and, and spent time in emergency room nursing, talk about that choice to to sort of work kind of the tip of the spear, if you will, with dealing with folks in, in in traumatic emergency oriented situations
0: yeah I think one of the reasons I went into the ER was both that I feel like i'm I can act and react well under high stress situations mm-hmm. but also because in Western medicine, I just couldn't imagine entering in our the way Western medicine deals with chronic health illness and I don't see how we're doing a great job treating the whole person, including economic hardship and quality of life issues and um, things like we're seeing now with realizing how much the um, racial disparity with things like COVID making it extra pronounced, but have always been there. And so ER was a really nice entry point where I'm like, well, Western medicine does emergency medicine really well. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And we can, um, Really help people. And it was, you know, I worked mostly up in Polson, which was a critical access little teeny hospital without a whole lot of support around for getting people into operating rooms and different things. So it was pretty wild. I definitely saw some things come through the door that um, were big and yeah. um, hard to manage. Um, but I did also like being able to work with huge variety of the population, but it also Got me pretty, also the disillusionment of how much disparity there is for who gets treated how, and like the use of the ER from people that don't have any other healthcare, things like that.
1: So, yeah, I mean, you're seeing uh, mm-hmm. the acute case of a lack of insurance, a lack of access. Mm-hmm and all these mm-hmm. things. So a lot of people are using the emergency department. This is something that, you know, our country has known for a long time and, and hasn't really done much to fix. Mm-hmm. But yeah, people are using that as their like main access point to healthcare. So you're seeing all kinds of things that you're probably like, gosh, why it's just so sad that this person didn't have access at, at so many other steps before that it got to this point.
0: Yeah, and in particular there were just so many cases of say, people seeking pain medication. Yeah, yeah. And in the ER, you know, they just get labeled as a drug seeker. And um, I get it for a lot of the providers, a lot of the doctors in their own ability to just maintain their own well-being can't spend the time finding other alternatives for those individuals. But they were just labeled as a drug seeker and then moved out and pushed around through the system rather than why are they drug seeking? Oh, they're a single mom in an abusive relationship. Hey, there's a whole system of networking that needs to support these people and the drug seeking is just the symptom and it's not what is causing their issues.
1: Yeah, I can see a, a lot of threads there. Well, you, you, know, you sort of said that, that you, you chose emergency medicine in the sense that you didn't want to get bogged down in some of the systematic just problems with the overall structure of, of how we do healthcare here. Yet at the same time, you're seeing some of those outcomes um, up close and personal in the emergency department. That's mm-hmm. going to be frustrating in that you've got to get people through a system that's, that's probably not designed to meet those longer term kind of life needs that those people need.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I you know, I have lots of friends that are amazing nurses and can manage that sort of discordant work environment mm-hmm. where you're helping people but you can't help on the larger level and I just it kind of tormented me so much that I wasn't able to rejuvenate myself in between shifts and it was almost like a latex allergy where the more exposure I got to it the more sensitive I became to the greater social injustices of it and I my tolerance for working there just ended pretty quickly. And I knew that early on in my, um, nursing career, it was starting to become pretty evident right away. And that's why I started going into the backcountry emergency medicine because that felt more proactive and I could educate. And, um, that part of it was what kept me going in the medical profession longer than just straight working in the hospital.
1: And at one point in all this, I mean, are you kind of, were you sort of doing your own art all the time as, as side projects or just sort of passion projects, and then decided to, to kind of make a leap as, as a professional artist or what role was art playing in your life up to this point?
0: So my husband and I moved up to, um, well, first we just were getting kicked out of a house we were renting in Missoula. A beautiful spot right downtown and we were only paying $75 a month rent wow and didn't feel like we could tolerate m- paying more in rent at the time and so we got a yurt and moved onto a friend's piece of property and lived there for in the on the friend's property for 3 years moved it to a piece of property we bought in St. Ignatius and lived in the yurt for another 3 years there and in that time we started building a house together a straw bale timber frame off-grid place up there and that was kind of where i spilled a lot of my design and creative and creating my own lights and um doing lots of mud and stucco and damien doing his the timber framing sure. and the larger carpentry so i felt like i was using it in kind of a design way there we designed the house and um and then just the bigger i think influence for me in those six years plus was just like hauling water and just the the rhythm of living in that sort of environment getting wood damien was hunting just preparing food from what he would hunt from and Mm -hmm. um, just that sort of style lifestyle for a number of years took all of my extra energy so i wasn't necessarily seeking out art specifically Um, but then after we moved into the house we built um, that was right when i was getting pretty uh, burnt out of the er sure and then i had a bike accident and um herniated discs in my neck um which the combination of uncontrolled pain issues and working the er was just too much and that was kind of what was the catalyst to bail and just dive into art full time do ceramics
1: yeah And, and so and working out of the studio up up in saint up in saint ignatius um and are you entirely, I mean, your work is so beautiful. Are you entirely self-taught? It sounds like maybe so. Like what's the, is it sort of just trial and error, finding your way?
0: Um, not fully self-taught. When I was going to university, both the first degree, my two degrees that were both bachelor, so um, I was able to thread in some of the ceramics courses offered at the university. Okay throughout that and I would just kind of keep a little bit a slow trickle of exposure to that through those years of going to university and then um but beyond that that was that was the extent of my art education and then yeah trial by error and just and thank you so much for the compliment it's um it's great to hear I, I had a lot of fun doing it <laughs>
1: Yeah, and we'll sort of get to the 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 sort of you know we're talking about the opening phase of that, and then there was the there was a sunset as well at least to the to the professional practice. Uh, before we kind of just do that, I, I, I want to talk about the, this backdrop of your you know your passion as a mountain athlete as well, because you know the, these these wild places and playing in the mountains has been a, a huge part of your your life as well. You know, we referenced that earlier in terms of making choices to come to, to come to the Rocky Northern Rockies in Montana. But but what role is is sort of outdoor adventure in connection with wild places playing as you're kind of transitioning through these various stages of life?
0: Yeah, it was. It's definitely the most consistent thing that has kind of carried me through all of it, mm-hmm. and in particular, not necessarily even the recreation of it as much as just being in those wild places, whether it be where we're living in our yurt or where we were situated in St. Ignatius. And I get almost just as much joy of, you know, pulling invasive species weeds off of a beautiful place below West St. Mary, as I do um, (laughs) doing other recreational activities. So they all kind of being connected to land and place is super important to me. And it feels like the most true grounding I have consistently um, whenever I have difficult things in my life, that's definitely the place I go, whether it be to actually physically be out there ice climbing or running or just sitting and watching clouds move over a ridgeline. Um, either one just are a super important part of my well being.
1: So within that, like, what is, what is the hook for you? I mean, cause some people go into the mountains to sort of seek discomfort other people, you know, joy, like being on the edge of something. Um, for you, it sounds like there maybe is a multitude of of things happening. But yeah, what, what is the essential hook?
0: Yeah, I think it's a combination. It's not necessarily, I'm not an adrenaline kid. I'm mm-hmm. not somebody that seeks I mean, that mountain bike accident was kind of hilarious because I'm not a mountain biker. <laughs> I probably had the accident because I was being timid on a downhill instead of proactive, and that's probably why I crashed. Sure. So my, um, my mountain endeavors tend to be a little bit more of the methodical, paced, less, um, less adrenaline style. Like backcountry skiing, there is the part of going down, but I love the uphill um, skis touring more so usually than the actual skiing. Um, well that's and- like
1: 90% of the actual time spent. So that's a good <laughs> exactly. thing. You enjoy it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly. Um, and when it, yeah, it's funny cause then we get places in my, my commitment level for, Doing things, whether if there's just a little bit of avalanche danger, I'm like, oh, I'm good. Yep. <laughs> other people are, like, but this is what we're here for. Sure. <laughs> are you sure? <laughs> um, and also climbing, you know, th- my favorite is multi-pitch, longer backcountry-style climbing, where there's just all those subtle in-between moments where you're just sitting at the base of the rock and it's still really cold out, and you're all those kind of like sweet in-between moments are kind of what my is my hook. Um, yeah, sitting at a belay ledge while your partner's spending a lot of time trying to get through something and you can just look out at the horizon line and watch the clouds move. Um, Those sorts of things are the, yeah, the hook and the curiosity too. I think I keep stumbling into um, bigger endeavors than I'm not really a super summit driven or goal oriented mountaineer, but then opportunities have arisen to do stuff on Denali and India and um, in the Himalaya and, The curiosity, I think, I'm like, oh, what's over there? What are those mountains like? There's the hook.
1: Yeah. And and what you described there certainly resonates with me. Like, I I enjoy those similar activities for a lot of the same reasons. And and you reference kind of just maybe unexpected moments where, you know, you just watch ice, water dripping off of a piece of ice, or you, you, you spy a particular critter or just like an interesting rock or a sunset or just a moment that that resonates. And it's, for me, I enjoy the long days. I don't know if it's the the length of the day that is the attraction, or if it's just you got to be out there long enough for the chance for those moments to happen.
0: Yeah, and almost that long enough for the brain to quiet down in order to notice them.
1: Absolutely. I mean, that's, yeah, so much of the journey is spent Unfortunately, kind of like just getting your mind, you know, out of the, out of the daily tedium and connection to electronic devices and office drama and all that other BS, you, know, you can have your body in the place and, and your mind isn't necessarily there with you. And it takes a while, at least it takes a while for me to, to get there.
0: And it's interesting, too, because, you know, with a lot of the backcountry emergency medicine or teaching avalanche stuff, you know, so much emphasis and stress is on these big decision making moments when really, um, yeah, the experience of just moving your feet over miles is kind of the meditative part that I like more so than these points you have to turn around or get benighted or, you know, those bigger or sort of, more sexy things to talk about when you talk about backcountry endeavors really don't have as much attraction to me. Is that just like that rhythm of your feet moving for hours on end?
1: Yeah. I would suppose if you're, I mean, we'll, we'll kind of get into this. I would suppose as you're, if you're properly in tune with your surroundings throughout the endeavor, the activity, the, the journey, whatever you want to call it, that those, the chances of those dramatic inflection points or, or moments where you have to make a singular decision are probably less likely, and that you're just more in tune and not going to be surprised by something. You're, you're not going to get to a, a an instance where you have that kind of big decision moment. Those, those can certainly come, mm-hmm. but um, it's not like you put your head down, climb to the top, dig a pit, and that that pit is the only like decision point of the day.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: So let's yeah, yeah I mean let's maybe get into that because you are you spend a lot of time you know, helping people figure out how to make these decisions through primarily um you mentioned backcountry medicine but also uh, um backcountry ski education avalanche training and so forth particularly a training for 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 women only um yeah you know, what's been the what's been the, the attraction to uh to to that type of education
0: I think similar to what i was mentioning about kind of like these big sexy ideas of what things are versus what actually happens Mm -hmm. so one of the things that i absolutely love about um avalanche education and i've kind of pared down any sort of education i do to this one woman's all women's class that's just a pure introduction to backcountry it's not even really avalanche focused at all and because just the letting somebody have a blank canvas of snow in front of them and they get to choose the line that they break trail and giving people the confidence to like write that line on that snow and make those decisions. And it's those like small moments and joys and that we've all felt of being like, Oh, breaking trail is pretty fun as long as you don't have to be the only one doing it all the time. Sure. But um, yeah, I think that those sorts of keeping it real for people, um, you kind of humanity of it. I think that one of the common things with women and this has been known for a long time. I think that an Atlantic article came out, gosh, 10, 15 years ago about how women tend to feel like they have to have everything in line before they dive into something. Mm-hmm. They'll, you know, make sure they have 98% of a job application that they know they can do before they apply, where it doesn't tend to be that way for most men. And, um, I see that in the backcountry where women are just so hesitant to put themselves out there when they haven't had a lot of exposure. I feel lucky. My life trajectory had given me lots of exposure through the years, Um, but seeing people that haven't had that exposure and they just are so unwilling to just try. Um, And I don't know if that's just our culture um, here in the US or what, but it's pretty pronounced.
1: A New Angle is brought to you by First Security Bank and Blackfoot, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. This is John Twiggs with Montana PBS, and you're listening to A New Angle.
0: And to be able to show that, like, you know, I showed up to teaching a class once. I forgot my skin. Like (laughs) sometimes we're junk shows and that's fine. And we'll get through it and we'll figure it out, you know, and I'm usually not that bad of a junk show, but just that sort of like humility of like some of the best athletes I know are the ones that, you know, forget to bring their lunch and don't ever eat enough food. And, the little quirks that all of our friends have that we go into the back country with. I think a lot of people starting into this don't realize that you can still have those quirks and still get all this stuff done back in the back country.
1: Still have fun, still be safe. And yeah. Uh, yeah so, so focusing uh, your educational efforts on women, let's let you talked a little bit about differences um, particularly in backcountry skiing. There's really some interesting research on, yeah, you know, how how women actually the presence of women make trips safer. Talk about that. Like some some just some differences in the riskiness of. I don't even know how you necessarily express it, but like the outcomes are better when when, when women are making the decisions. <laughs> it sounds like.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting because there's not a whole lot of research on right. um, gender, and the little bit of research that was done. Is kind of getting dated now relative to the number of women being in the back country. So a lot of that data came from when there weren't as equal representation of men and women. And now I'd be really fascinated to see what would come out of a similar research now with um, higher numbers of women mm-hmm. out there. Um, but there are some common things, you know, like really classic is women tend to be extrinsic thinkers and think kind of globally and have that sort of spider web this and looking outward at all the different connections and starting with a core, but f- constantly reaching beyond to see what else informs the decision. Whereas men tend to, and this is like very every shade of gray, I have m- male friends that are on every part of that spectrum and oh, female sure. friends on every part. But in general, um, men tend to be more intrinsic thinkers which kind of falls into some of the classic um, mental traps or heuristic traps that have been talked about in avalanche education, which is the trying to like, boil down a decision to the prove what we want to do anyways, (laughs) Uh you know, and, and intrinsic, I think, is a really good skill to have. um, But it's just the different way we do it. So intrinsic being like, Let's cut out the noise and find the most critical piece we need to focus on. And I think both ways of thinking are just as valuable, but how we mix them in in our decision-making in the backcountry, I think, makes a big difference. So I think what you're speaking towards with groups being sometimes safer with women involved, I believe, is part of that extrinsic style thinking that has to be part of um, objective risk hazard management. And thinking like, oh, I saw this little point release. Oh, the weather's been this. Oh, three days ago, this information. And just drawing from such a variety of information to inform the present.
1: That makes a ton of sense and kind of resonates with with my experience as well. And you mentioned in there too, like how over time, some of the dynamics of these groups have changed, particularly as, as more women are, are are engaged in some of these mountain activities namely backcountry skiing i mean it sounds like and i've, I've seen some some of your, your your writing to this end like you probably came up in a culture where like you were often the only gal in a group of guys and now you're seeing more and more all all female groups out there uh, getting after it in, in in the backcountry which is great um what's been your kind of experience of, 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 of those different dynamics and seeing it unfold over time?
0: Yeah, I had this hilarious a couple summers ago. I, I hadn't been much of a runner, never done a running race. And, um, it was after having, uh, my son and I was just like, I, I had an injured shoulder, couldn't climb. So mm-hmm you know, things shift. And I was like, I'm going to try to run a running race. And so I started training with some gals and they all happen to be younger than me. And we we're on a run one day and we we're talking about gender dynamics. And one of them said, Oh yeah, back in your day, you had to be one of the boys. And it just, gave me that little bit of jolt, uh, A, being like, oh, yeah, I am actually a lot yeah. older than you
1: Back guys, in your day. Yep. Was,
0: yeah. And then also that realization of like, oh, yeah, it's not like that anymore. Mm-hmm. And it's true. I was totally like one of the only women in my crew of people that got out. And I think it's because I just naturally gravitated towards kind of being like one of the guys. I wasn't trying to be like one of the guys. It was just was kind of my personality. But mm-hmm. now the space for women that aren't like one of the guys that are very feminine and very much like the, you know, nail polish and makeup and they can be just as feminine as they want. Not that that's the definition of femininity, sure. but as a contrast to my own experience. And they are, you know, just as accepted in these crews that are it's awesome. I'm so excited to see what is going to come out of um the new generation of women that have girl posses.
1: Mm -hmm. And you you think about like the nature of, of what sorts of projects um, groups like that will go after and what sort of accomplishments and how accomplishment is sort of quantified and conceptualized. Yeah. It could lead to kind of a, just redefining the terms of, of what is considered fun, successful, fulfilling in the mountains.
0: Definitely. Yeah. It'll be fascinating to watch. And I've been so, I feel so fortunate to have some younger friends that are kind of showing me through their eyes of what is value and what is all those things you just described. And it's, it's been fun to be a part of that as well on this end of things.
1: So you mentioned that line of, you sort of dropped in the the birth of your son and sort of transitioning in, in, into motherhood and, and through the context of, you know, hanging out with, with, uh, folks that were maybe a little bit younger and said, you know, back in your day or whatever, uh let's talk about that. I mean, your experience coming into motherhood was, was not necessarily an experience that you, you had planned on. Um, yeah, here you are and and thriving in it. And let's talk about that, that transition in your life.
0: Yeah. I think this constant remaking of the concept of myself and motherhood was kind of like the biggest doozy of that of all injuries had done it to some extent. Um, And then, yeah, motherhood, I was, I kind of had decided to not be a mother. There was times in my life that it could have happened and it would have been great. But then there was a kind of a dry, about 37 years old, I was like, nope, I'm good. I do not want to be a mom. Mm -hmm. And I was working towards that. And then there was just the oops moment. And um, I still was trying to decide whether or not I wanted to go through with the pregnancy. Mm. But a very classic thing where just the hormones once they're in the system and I'm very much pro choice and, and different times in my life would have made different decisions. But once those hormones at that point in my life were there, I, I couldn't come, I couldn't come to ending the pregnancy. And sure. So re-envisioning this next, next way of being as a mom. And it's been amazing. Yeah. Hard, yeah. not, not easy, especially for lots of other reasons beyond just the child. But, um, life and lifestyle and relationships but um but amazing
1: and so you're so wolfgang is is what three years old at this point about yep. yeah yep. um and during that time you've you've moved back to missoula or, or did you move to missoula before he was born
0: yeah we moved back to missoula before he was born um due to my husband's work and sure just it was a long commute <laughs> So we came back to Missoula and then um, built a house here and then we had him, yeah, three years ago. And um, it's really fascinating to me to watch the whole spectrum of what hormones and hormones in our system can change the way we think. Okay. I think we often times feel that we're somehow neuroplasticity and controlling how we think about things and through just, human development over those years. And then pregnancy was just the kind of exclamation point on the fact that hormones are so powerful in our decisions and in our, in particular um, to just have it be um, related to what we've talked about before, like skiing, right? I was seven months pregnant and we were spring skiing and we were trying to skin out of a bowl and it, the snow had hadn't softened up yet. Like we thought it would, it didn't get as warm that day as we anticipated. Mm -hmm. And so we were kind of side healing out of the bowl and my skins couldn't grip. There was no, and the, the crust was really hard and it was wild. How different every, all the ways I thought about risk and my putting myself there Um, and being pregnant is a pretty obvious one, but those hormones linger. And even post-pregnancy, how I think about risk, how I, conduct myself in the back country has dramatically shifted.
1: Yeah. And you're, I mean, you're kind of tying into some really big ideas around sort of free will and biology and, and all these sort of things we don't, I mean, yeah. I mean, if you're doing tip of the spear science in, in these areas, y- you might have a clear sense of what's driving the bus, but uh, <laughs> our lived experience of what's driving the bus and how that changes over time, um, is pretty powerful. I certainly know my relationship. I mean, there's a natural arc sometimes with a lot of folks over age with your relationship to risk, but, but adding children into the mix, at least for me, there's just things that, you know, I had a taste for before, but I'm not sad that they're not on the menu anymore. Cause I, I don't, I don't miss them. I, I miss the memories of them a little bit, but I, I that doesn't translate into sort of any sense of loss associated with, with parenthood for me. It's it's been a it's been an interesting journey.
0: I know, and I remember since I was one of the last of my crew of friends to have a kid, mm-hmm. I remember people telling me that and I was like, You're crazy. Like I'm totally gonna miss this if I can't do it. Um and I used to travel for work internationally and the idea of like not being able to go to Africa and India and stuff sounded like how could I would never give that up and I'm sitting here now being like ah yeah you really don't want to have to do the whole Delhi shuffle <laughs> like that sort of travel sounds horrible right now yeah ex- it, well. it's, it's interesting <laughs> in, in particular
1: right now um maybe yes. be a day where we're sort of I feel like an airplane might be interesting but certainly not right now um I want to make sure we sort of uh, just sort of tie up the chronology a little bit in the sense that, you know, quite recently you decided to, um, you know, turn away from the, the professional artist life and direct your professional activities more toward your work at Home Resource and Zero Waste and some other initiatives that are, are, are tied to environmental sustainability and community development. Uh, talk about kind of uh, where you are at professionally right now.
0: Yeah, I think it's it was just this serendipitous opportunity and so cool how even in our conversation here, the full coming full circle was feels so awesome and feels like I'm kind of, to use kind of an overused quote, but in the pocket of where I need to be mm-hmm. bringing in environmental justice and social justice all in this one career that I'm in now with home resource because they have done an amazing job linking those things and that intersectional justice piece between environmental and social justice. And they're doing so much stuff under the radar for the social justice piece that you wouldn't necessarily see just shopping there as their reuse store. And um, it just feels so awesome to be entering the civic discourse at that place.
1: And talk. I mean, so yeah. What is the work that you're doing? What? what how do you fit into the team there? And, and what is the team actually trying to do?
0: So I'm their, um, develop a uh, program director, mm-hmm. and in within my wheelhouse is two sort of branches. One is a zero waste education, where there's another person who's doing great work coordinating statewide Missoula specific, but then also statewide education and curriculum around zero waste for school age kids, and then expanding it beyond that age. Okay. Um, So it's getting every fifth grade class in Missoula has learned about zero waste. Um, And so just expanding that so that the young generation has the tools to know the proactive things we can do, especially right now when everything feels so big and daunting. And like, we can't, affect change in our personal lives very easily because everything's so huge. These programs are very good at showing what can be possible on an individual level, um, especially with young people for the education piece. And then on a, another branch is a woman doing great work with the um, zero waste infrastructure and development around the city and how the city and county and eventually the state manage their waste on a larger level whether it be deconstructing old homes mm-hmm. and construction waste to household waste into things that are barriers for people managing their household waste besides just the landfill and just looking real big picture at how as a community we want to conduct ourselves and so i managed those two kind of Branches, and then the store is self-supported with its finances and it has its own big wheel turning of being able to keep things out of the landfill and the intrinsic energy those things needed to be built is kept and not just need to be um, rebuilt as well as allowing people to redo their homes affordably. The first house that I mentioned Damien and I built up in San Ignatius was a huge, huge portion of it was repurposed materials, and um, again, to come full circle and work there feels pretty fantastic.
1: I'm sure, and you know, this th- this this part of the conversation is often kind of difficult in the sense that, me you and know, my sense, Darcy, is that 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 you're a doer, you're a builder, like you create stuff, and um, in my experience with creating stuff, it. it, it often comes from a place of restlessness. Like my, my response to chaos or uncertainty is to kind of do stuff to create new stuff. And, you know, people often ask like, well, what ties it all together? And and sometimes, you know, truth is that I probably don't really know. I can, I can make up a story looking back at my life that, that maybe ties it all together. But I don't know if that, that sort of observation um, resonates with you. But I guess uh, I bring it up by way of sort of trying to ask, like, what does tie all these these things together? Is there something that you're that you're searching for, um, or a restlessness that's that's motivated you to to try so many different, rich types of career um, activities?
0: Yeah, the thread, the thread that connects them. Hmm. I there is a restlessness there for sure, and I think that restlessness is that sense of wanting to be a thoughtful participant in life, you know, Mm. whether it be on the ground with the environment or with other people. And I think that that's where, you know, each time I've done a swing in my career or even my recreation, um, it's kind of all to find out how best as an individual, I can be a a good participant in the world. Um, And whether that be taking care of a piece of land or trying to take care of somebody in the ER or trying to keep people from using plastic bags, you know, all of those things. I think that's where it comes from is like, I just want to have purpose beyond myself. Mm -hmm. And I think that's also why recreating as much as I love it. And it's been a major part of what I've done in my life. The kind of like seeking that inner voice, has in a sense been more powerful to me than those achievements in the recreation world. Um, does that make sense? It
1: makes a ton of sense. And I guess Darcy, I would sort of try to re ask the, the same question and from a slightly different perspective is, you know, are, are looking back on your experience and maybe looking ahead at what's next for you? Like, what would you, what would you like people to learn? from your story? Are there, are there messages or, or kernels of wisdom that that you'd like to make sure people get from it?
0: (laughs) Oh, I'm still trying to get them. Um... (laughs) As we all are. Yeah. Right. Um, Yeah. That I think one of the things that shocked me most as a 42 year old with a three year old (laughs) and these life changing events and as just that, feeling like I didn't get the memo in my 20s, that it doesn't get easier, and it's never answered. And somebody probably told me that, and I just wasn't listening because I was 20. Mm -hmm. And um, But that really has been cool in this moment in my life, to know that there's no actual arriving. It feels like that always arriving is what makes it so amazing and cool, is that every new step is a new arrival and it's always right there. And that curiosity of what the next arrival will be is you have to let go of some, and that can be devastating and hard, but that sort of flow of things being let go of and new things coming in is what makes life so interesting and profound and to learn from it as, as the flow goes through.
1: I love that. You know, every, every moment is, is another arrival. And I think, um, you know, n- not to hit it too, too hard on the nose. I think we've arrived probably at the appropriate time to bring the conversation to a close <laughs> Darcy. This has been awesome. Just learning more about you and your work and your approach to it. Um, I shouldn't even frame it that way. You're just approach to life. It's inspiring. It certainly resonates with me and, and some of the things I've, I've tried to do myself. And, um, Yeah, just thank you for doing what you do and uh, being willing to share some of it with us.
0: Well, thanks. I really appreciate your time and your interest and all the work you do on your podcast has been a gift to the people that are out there hearing it.
1: Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. A New Angle is underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot with support from the University of Montana College of Business and Consolidated Electrical Distributors. AJ Williams is our producer Jeff Amet, John Wicks, and VTO made our music, and Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. If you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. If you like what you heard, tell your friends about it. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.